Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Hey, everyone. Something a little different today. I am going to play for you my conversation with journalist Robin Wright that was recorded in December 2014. I'm bringing you this oldie but goodie for a couple of reasons. First, it was a really good conversation, and not enough of you uh, have gone back and listened to it. In the time since I recorded that interview, the audience has increased substantially, and this is a good moment to kind of go back into the archives and, and take a look at that really interesting, good conversation with one of my favorite journalists working today. Uh, the second reason is more straightforward. Uh, I've been on vacation and uh, I had an episode lined up for today, but I got called into a meeting at the State Department, actually, in which I briefed some public affairs officers about podcasts and the power of podcasting, uh, which meant that I couldn't do the episode scheduled for release today. Uh, but it was fortuitous because it gives me the opportunity to go back and share with you this really fantastic and interesting conversation with Robin Wright. When we spoke back in December 2014, Robin Wright had just published a piece in The New Yorker, for which she is a staff writer, uh, about a battle between Kurdish forces and Turkish forces and American forces uh, just over the border in Syria. And she was viewing the battle from the town of Gaziantep in Turkey. And she painted this like really remarkable scene about, you know, watching a battle unfold a few kilometers away from the safety and, and security of this Turkish city. It was a really kind of remarkable opening scene in a really interesting story. And so that's where we kicked off our conversation before having a longer discussion about her life and her career and some really interesting moments of history in which her life and career intersected. And my favorite part of this episode is when she talks about her time covering the war in Angola. Anyway, this episode should also serve as a useful reminder to go back and check those deep archives. If you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, it opens up our entire archive of hundreds of, of episodes that go back to 2014, even some back to, to 2013. Uh, that are are evergreen, just like this one. You know, we we talk about the life and career of the person in which I'm interviewing, and uh, we have interesting digressions about some of the historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. And and this conversation, this episode with Robin Wright's a good distillation of that. All right, so here is my conversation with journalist Robin Wright from 2014. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Gaziantep has become the frontline city in southern Turkey for the Syrian war front. It's the place where the international organizations and the United States all headquarter their um, aid programs, their outreach to the opposition. The Syrian opposition government is now headquartered in Gaziantep. The Free Syrian Army, the umbrella group for the rebels, has its logistic office there, and, and they have their main meetings of commanders who come out of Syria. It's a place, though, where ISIS has its spies and its supporters. Uh, there have been cars driving through Gaziantep with ISIS bumper stickers. Uh, so everybody is in Gaziantep, and it's the place to go now in the same way that Casablanca was in North Africa during World War II, and Peshawar, the Pakistani city, uh, was in the 1980s as the outside world was uh, looking for a base to support the opposition to the Soviet occupation of and, Afghanistan. And I, I like how one of uh, your uh, subjects that you interviewed describes a city as something like uh, Oklahoma City, but uh, as if it was on the forefront of an, in, of an international war. I guess suggesting that it's not necessarily a cosmopolitan place, but it's a workaday sort of um, kind of wealthy uh, city as well, right? Well, it's an industrial city, but it's a very pleasant place. And it has some wonderful restaurants and very fancy new malls. It's a uh, one of the symbols of Turkey's economic progress over the past decade. Uh, it ha- the malls have, you know, the latest movies. Um, Brad Pitt's Fury was showing while I was there. Uh, the shopping mall it was in had an Arby's, Popeyes, McDonald's, uh, Burger King, uh, as well as a Starbucks, and lots of Western European and American uh, stores selling Western goods. So it's a very flashy place, but it is also being a bit redefined because of the influx of Syrian refugees. And there are parts of the city that are increasingly taken over by Syrians, which has led to a kind of tension. So you see the war in Syria uh, having its overspill effect in Gaziantep. Um, so one question I had leaving your piece is is this. So I mean, Turkey is like one of the stronger states uh, in the region, right? Like a very strong central authority. Um, yet you have um, apparently like ISIS operatives operating with some impunity uh, in the city. And you have a situation that you describe where like American contractors or American aid workers are recommended to keep a low profile. The U.S. doesn't even have like an embassy or, pardon me, a consulate there, even though it's such a, a key – um, node in the sort of uh, uh, in in supporting the Syrian opposition and getting aid into into Syria, uh, you know, Americans are, are advised to keep a low profile. So I guess, like, what gives? Why can't the Turkish state exert its authority more effectively in Gaziantep? Well, the Turkish police and security forces are very visible along that southern border, um, but at the same time. You know, it's tough to always detect terrorists. And in the week before I got to Gaziantep, the local police force had discovered in two different raids more than 330 pounds of C4 plastic explosive and one 
one pound can kill several people, as well as uh, a couple dozen suicide vests. And it's, you know, one thing to police a city. It's another thing to try to contain or prevent terrorism. And uh, the U.S. government has put out two notices to people going to um, southern Turkey and or to Gaziantep about the fears of uh, extremist or militant attacks. Uh, so it's, you know, it's not an issue as much for the Turks, who are pretty effective. Um, Turkey is also a member of NATO in confronting the threat. It's preventing, you know, the kind of attacks that the United States hasn't been able to prevent either. Um, it, so how far from uh, Kobani is Gaziantep? Well, the frontier is actually 500 miles long, and Gaziantep is uh, literally just over half an hour from the border. So you have ISIS, you know, 45 minutes away from Gaziantep. Um, now, Kobani is kind of laterally further away, so you have to drive a couple of um, hours east and uh, and then south to get to Kobani. And it's a, a surreal sight, I have to say, driving kind of blindly on dirt paths up to this hillside and then getting there and looking out. And there right in front of you, a few football fields away, is the war. And I got there and about half an hour later, the first U.S. airstrike hit and this huge mushroom cloud emerged above the city. And I could feel the reverberations um, because it was so close. All day long, you hear the drone of warplanes um, bombers as well as drones and, uh, and, you know, intelligence aircraft flying overhead, um, the sound of mortars going off and automatic rifle fire, occasionally an artillery piece. And so it's a, um, and I sat with a group of refugees on that hillside who were passing around a pair of old binoculars to look for what was happening to their homes at the little shops. And it's a heartbreaking experience because so much of the city has now been destroyed. And the amazing fact is that the United States has now uh, launched over 340 airstrikes on Kobani since September, and yet ISIS still controls about half the city. Uh, I guess um, uh, two quick questions. One, again, just describing the scene. So basically... uh, they're just people gathered on a hilltop in like folding chairs watching a war, uh, you know, a few hundred yards away. There are no folding chairs. Everyone sits on the ground or stands and just watches this amazing war. Um, it's a, you know, usually when I cover wars, I'm in the middle of it, but this is the first time it's been almost a spectator sport, just watching this tragedy unfold in front of you. Um, so the the uh, other question of, about the the Battle of Kobani is, I guess, part of the reason or of the stalemate that the Syrian that the Turkish government has, I guess, so far been very reluctant to let uh, Kurdish forces reinforce the city via Turkey. Well, the the, the Turks have actually allowed the uh, Iraqi Peshmerga, the Iraqi Kurds, uh, entry through Turkey into northern Syria. Uh, but the problem and the dispute and over Turkey's role really boils down to 
whether the outside world is going to fight only one of the two wars playing out in Syria. The two wars are very different. The first war emerged out of the 2011 uprising by Syrian protesters demanding reforms uh, by the government of Bashar Assad and later asking for his ouster. And that then grew into, um, because Assad used force against his own people, uh, in turn turned into an insurgency and eventually a civil war. And then this very, the second war, which has played out in the past year, is the emergence of ISIS and the militants who are predominantly taking on the more moderate rebels that the West supports. There's very little interaction, tragically or, or even ironically, between ISIS and the Syrian government. The rebels are having to fight both of them. And at the beginning of this year, the rebels held four provinces and they lost two to ISIS. And over the past month, they've lost most of a third to al-Nusra, which is the faction aligned with al-Qaeda. And they've, they're left with only one and they hold only part of that because the Syrian government is moving steadily around Aleppo, which is the largest city. But this gets back to your question, and that is the role of, of Turkey. Turkey argues that it does not want to get sucked into the war against ISIS unless the outside world is also going to fight the, or get involved in the war against Assad. And the United States does not want to fight the Syrian civil war, in part because of his experience for eight years in Iraq and knowing that it could take long, a very long time, cost a lot, and lead to uh, American deaths to have boots on the ground. And you can't win a war like that without boots on the ground. And Turkey says, so I, it's not going to get involved in the war against ISIS unless the international community fights Assad. So at the moment, when you go to Kobani, you see all these uh, Turkish tanks and artillery pieces just sitting there, and American warplanes having to fly hundreds of miles um, and there are other countries as part of the coalition that are also bombing, uh, while the Turkeys right next door are sitting and just watching. So I guess the conclusion uh, might be, if, if you, you draw this out a little bit, that you know, to the extent that the um, non-ISIS, uh, non-El-Nusra rebels, the Free Syrian Army or, or whatever you want to call it, are marginalized and are losing ground steadily, it seems, to both Assad and the Islamists, that they'll they'll be sort of wiped out, they'll be a non-factor in that at some point, if present trends continue, you'll have ISIS versus Assad. Well, I don't know whether that's what's going to happen because there's al-Nusra as well. There are well over a thousand different different militias that are fighting in Syria today. And uh, the two most prominent militant groups are Nusra and ISIS. Um, but there are some other Islamist movements as well. And then there are a full array of groups, some of which are under the Free Syrian Army and some that are not. And that's one of the great problems in helping the rebels that the West has supported become a more viable force because they're so divided among themselves. And that's true not just among the militias, but politically among the opposition forces as well. And the opposition is divided in part because the Arab world itself is divided and different countries are supporting different factions, even among the, 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 the moderate rebels. So it is a political mess 
just as it is a military mess. Um, so I wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk a- about you. I mean, I've been reading your your work for a long time, and, and you're someone who's just helped me understand the world uh, immeasurably in, in so many ways for so many years. Uh, so I want to actually learn a little bit about you. Um, where, where are you from? I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I went to the University of Michigan. And I will say, go blue. Okay. So uh, now, I, since you were born there, it was your uh, family in academia? Yes. My father was a law professor, and my mother... Um, was in the fine arts. Okay. Uh, and how, uh, growing up, I mean, did you have any um, passion for journalism? Or I guess, like, what came first, your passion for journalism or your curiosity uh, about the world? Definitely my curiosity about the world. Journalism was a total accident. Um, I lived in a, a dorm at the University of Michigan where one of um, uh, the other girls there I bumped into in the hallway and she was going off to join the student paper and I had no interest at all. I thought journalism was kind of a blue collar profession and um, I was interested in history and um, science, space, physics, um, math, but certainly not journalism. But my father only had girls and my father used to schlep us to all the sporting events since he had no little boys to take with him. So when my friend kept insisting I go to her to see, to join the student paper, I thought, well, I'll go and hear what they have to say. And I thought maybe I'll see if there's just one article I can write on sports to surprise my dad and get back to him after all he put us through as kids. And so I went along, I wrote the first article, I loved it, and I ended up as the first female sports editor um, of a student paper in this do you country. Rem- do you remember what the, the article was? Was about? No, I don't actually. Isn't that funny? It was probably about football because it was the fall, uh, almost certainly football because it was the, the beginning of the fall. Um, and I tended to write about football, basketball, and baseball, you know, the three big sports, occasionally wrestling and some of the others. But, um, and I ended up doing a lot of photography of sports as well. And, uh, I did a history degree in the end and went on to grad school, but uh, to earn, uh, you know, money for school, I worked on the student paper every night. Michigan had its own building, its own paper. We put out a, a full scale pa- paper that was a, could be as much as 32 pages. And uh, it's different these days, but back then we had our own linotype machines and everything. And then um, my junior and senior year, I worked on the city paper in the morning because uh, it was better than waiting tables or working in a department store or something. And I had so more fun. That was like the and Ann Arbor city paper? The Ann Arbor News. Ann Arbor News. Okay. And uh, and then so I, uh, as an internship in the summer after school, before I went to grad school, I got an internship on the, uh, the paper in Boston called the Christian Science Monitor. Of course. And uh, and I had a wonderful time working, you know, doing big pieces. I even made the front page. And they invited me back when I finished grad school. And I decided it was so much fun that why not? So my life is a total accident. Well, so the Christian Science Monitor does, I mean, excellent international coverage. Um, what, uh, I guess, uh, first of all, what did you go to grad school for? And what year are we talking about? Like, when did you graduate um, uh, grad school just to try to peg this? Uh, I graduate. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in seventy, and my uh, graduate degree was in seventy-one. And and did you get a history degree, or is it a journalism degree? Yes, no, history it's history. 
What did you study? Like, what was your history interests? Oh, I had a whole range of them. Um, did you have to uh, do like a master's thesis? Uh, yes. And, you know, the funny thing is I'm just trying to remember what it was so long ago. Uh -oh. <laughs> um, but my interest in uh, – I was very lucky. My interest in international affairs began when uh, my father took his sabbatical. And I was in the eighth grade. And he was doing a series of books with the ministers of finance of what was then the common market, the European common market, now the European Union. And so he put – um, my sister and me in a, a boarding school where we had just a wonderful array of students from around the world. In like Br in Brussels or Strasbourg? No, this was in Switzerland. In Switzerland, okay. Yeah, they moved around every month to a different country, and so they put us in a school in Switzerland. And I remember listening to the trial uh, on the BBC of Adolf Eichmann uh, with an uh, the daughter of an Israeli member of the Knesset and the daughter of a Lebanese prime minister um, and learning about the Middle East. And that was quite an introduction. And um, I met, you know, a wonderful Nigerian student who, you know, I, he, American students had so little training on the rest of the world. Remember, this was a time when the empires were still, just beginning to be dismantled. And I remember saying to him, uh, you know, what does your house look like in Nigeria? How do people live? And he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and he said, oh, we live in a treehouse, of course. <laughs> and I thought about that for a moment and I said to him, you know, I'm in the eighth grade. And I said, well, what do you use, you know, for facilities, for the toilet? And he said, Oh, we, of course, use the bush. <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I said, well, that seems very inconvenient. And he said, no, not at all. We use the lift, meaning the elevator. And, of course, he was teasing me. And I realized I never wanted to be ignorant about Africa again, because at that stage, we all learned about Africa through the empires, whether it's the Belgians, the Portuguese, or the French, or the Germans, and, or the Brits, and... So I actually, my first seven years as a foreign correspondent were all in Africa. So where, yeah. uh, so um, how did you sort of get to Africa? What, what countries did you first land in when you uh, had your first sort of gig as a foreign correspondent? Well, the first country, uh, see, in 1973, I was on my way to Iran and I stopped in Beirut on the way. We used to have to hop, skip and jump all over to get anywhere. And I remember landing and someone said, the Egyptians have crossed the Suez Canal. This was in 1973. And it was the day the, the, the October War broke out. And then I went on to Iran, which, of course, was during the Shah's era. And um, Wait, so you're, you're, uh, just, just, you're in uh, I was Well, Beirut. I used to travel around. Do, they, I used to be kind of fireman when there was – or, or I'd travel to do features. Mm -hmm. And my first um, – I'm trying to remember my very first trip. Um, 1974, I had a wonderful trip where I drove from Algiers to Dar es Salaam through it was Algeria, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, the Central African Republic, a country then called Zaire, now known as the Congo, um, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Kenya. And it took four months. And only three of those night, nights did I spend in a hotel the rest of the time. Um, I camped out 
And who were you with? Was this part of the? Did you do this alone, or were you with uh, a team or or someone? I, I, that sounds I, like an amazing trip. It was phenomenal. Of course, you couldn't do it today because of yeah. wars and um, illnesses and so forth. But I had a wonderful time, and I wrote a series about trekking across Africa um, and kind of the things that were changing the continent. And um, do, and does anything year, particular stand out from that from that series? Like, do you remember like a scene etched in your mind to this day? Oh my God, yes! I I camped in the mountains of the moon where um, Livingston and uh, Stanley um, Livingston and Stanley, you know, bumped into each other uh, and um, and had exchanges with pygmies, and there was no language we could speak. I'd brought all kinds of things to trade with people along the way. And I traded um, a couple of bottles of nail polish for a little uh, bow and arrow. And the bow had on it the tail of a monkey um, dangling down. And But just the exchange was extraordinary. And a year later, I actually, by accident, was on my way to Tunisia and was on the flight carrying Muhammad Ali. And he had been to North Africa, but never um, to sub-Saharan Africa. And he was going to fight the rumble in the jungle Mm -hmm. uh, with George Foreman. And uh, when I walked up to him and told him that I was fascinated by this fight because I'd just come through um, Zaire and I had seen all the posters for the Ali fight. And so he demanded that I be brought up from coach and that I sit next to him on the flight and tell him all about Africa. And I said to him, make me famous as a sports reporter, write me a poem. And off the top of his head, he said, you think people were surprised when Nixon resigned? You just wait till I whip Foreman's behind. <laughs> and it, so I, you know, it, I've had some wonderful. Did you, you know, it, did you write about that experience? With Ali? With Ali, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, when I got off, he was, we flew to Paris, and I was going to Tunis, and then he was uh, flying on to Zaire, again, in days when you couldn't take a direct flight. And uh, I called the, the Christian Science Monitor, and I said, I've got this great story. And, um, you know, he was trying to avoid the press, and I just happened to be on his flight, and, and I have all this you know, stuff. He got up and he demonstrated the punch he developed for the fight called the Ghetto Whopper, and he introduced me to Don King and Angelo Dundee, who were his, uh, you know, his trainer and his manager, and it was an amazing, you know, trip. He and he told me he brought all his own water and food on the flight because he didn't want to get, um, didn't want to get the trots <laughs> that might uh, weaken him for the fight, and. Um, but it turns out that the the monitor did not cover boxing in the same way it didn't cover hunting. And so the three pieces I'd hoped to write out of the piece, I wrote one. And that's why the Ali fight um, was important for the the cohesion of or the creation of a sense of nationalism in Zaire, a country that was still deeply divided along tribal and linguistic lines. I love that you can recite the poem that uh, Ali created for you on the spot. I guess it's not something you would soon forget. Yeah, and that was 1974. <laughs> that that's that's just an amazing story. I'm I'm like I have an ear to ear grin listening to this story. Uh, um, so what? Uh, so how long were you with uh, the Christian Science Monitor? 
Well, I got a fellowship in 1975, which took me um, uh, to Africa for a year and to write about the end of the Portuguese Empire, which really opened up the a third of Southern Africa um, with Angola and Mozambique, but it also kind of put the lit a fire under Rhodesia and Namibia and South Africa. And so I ended up um, for seven years covering uh, the wars of the region. And I was in Soweto the day the uprising, first black mass uprising began in Soweto in 1976. Well, actually, um, can, can I stop you there? What brought you to Soweto that day? Did you know that the, the uprising was about to happen? Well, I mean, the uprising started, um, and I just hightailed it. I lived in Johannesburg then, so I ah. and Soweto was on the outskirts, so I just uh, got in a car and raced out there, and then spent the next 18 months in and out of the townships as the this protest that started literally by school kids as they poured out of their schools after the government announced they had to change the language of education from languages they spoke to the language called Afrikaans, which is a derivative of the white settlers, the Dutch settlers, that uh, um, most kids didn't speak. And it very quickly became very bloody, and that day several kids were shot in the back. Um, Did you witness these, these shootings? Some of them, I saw the kids afterwards. I didn't see the immediate um, uh, opening fire, but I saw, you know, I got caught up in the tear gas and, you know, everybody running in all directions and the security forces uh, moving in and I can still see it in my eye. I guess, like, how do you, I mean, as as a reporter, approach this kind of brutality, like government-sponsored brutality? I mean, do you try to, like, have a sense of detachment to it or, or I mean how is that even possible when you're you know dealing with kids who have been shot in the back by state forces well as a reporter you know to have credibility long term you have to play it pretty straight the facts tell the story and you can I always believe in in quoting both sides and so I would tell the stories of the victims, and then I would get the comments of the government. And as a human being, you don't need to say anything because it's so obvious that in this case, there was excessive, unnecessary, and deadly force used against a bunch of school kids who were in their school uniforms and had no weapons with them. Uh, And so how long in total were you you in Africa in, in the 70s? Seven years. I covered the Rhodesian Civil War that now Zimbabwe. I covered uh, independence in both Mozambique and Angola, the end of their civil wars and um, or their uprisings against colonial rule, and then the civil wars that followed. I covered the, the civil war in Namibia, in the Horn of Africa. Um, Trying to think of other wars. And so, what was your your next move? Like, what compelled you? What made you want to uh, leave Africa at the time? Well, the last thing I did was interview Mugabe the day after he was elected. And I realized then that it was going to be a long time before South Africa played out. Uh, And that either I spent the rest of my life in Africa or I moved elsewhere. And by that point, I'd I'd moved from 
Christian Science Monitor to the Washington Post and then from the Washington Post to CBS. And so I said to CBS, it's time to move. And they offered me Rome. So I spent the next um, year and a half just over that uh, traveling around the world with Pope John the twi- uh, Pope John Paul II. Um, and there were great adventures there. Um, what were some, so what was your first trip with uh, Pope John Paul II? Oh, you're asking all these sequential questions. I have to think hard. Well, you don't have to. You don't one, have to answer sequentially. You can. Uh, well, just... I did some amazing trips. We did. Yeah. What, what, what are went, some one of those sounds that stand out um, to you? I, I we went to Brazil, and I remember him. This was at the height of the military dictatorship, standing in an auditorium with hundreds of thousands of labor union workers, raising his fist in the air shouting Solidarność, Solidarność, which was the name of the Polish labor union that took on the Polish communist government and forced it to cede power, the first one in Eastern Europe. And what he was doing was encouraging the labor unions in Brazil to be a force against the military dictatorship there. And they were. That was the amazing thing. I used to, I, I watched him trigger these amazing changes, historic changes he did the same thing in the Philippines. I was the pool reporter inside when he confronted uh, Ferdinand Marcos and said that he had empowered the church to be the pulpit for the opposition, which was something he didn't often allow. And that was the turning point that really um, led ultimately to the ouster of Ferdinand Marcos and his famous wife, Imelda. Um you know, everywhere we went, you know, he had some profound impact on the political scene. And it was it was great fun going back in 1994, you know, more than a dozen years later, and traveling with him on his first trip to what was then what had been the Soviet Union after the change. And his mother was Lithuanian. And so his first stop was in the former Soviet Republic of Lithuania, now the independent country of Lithuania. So that's so interesting too. I mean, so I'm 33 years old and like my memories of, of Pope John Paul are like that of kind of like a frail old man. But you hear these stories like you tell of, of him having this transformative effect uh, around the world. Uh, and so it's just kind of striking for me to, to hear that from you. Oh, yes, he was really incredibly dynamic. And we used to have these discussions on the plane. He would come back and talk to all of us and who traveled with him. And I was the only woman on the plane at that point. And he was very kind. We'd have these amazing conversations uh, uh, about, you know, even the Vatican's policy on birth control. And he had a revolutionary idea in some ways. He was the first pope to really say that, that sex was for more than procreation, that sex taught a man and a woman love and understanding love brought them closer to understanding the love of God. And, uh, and so I would ask him about when we went to the Philippines and he was speaking out against um, birth control, I, you know, when the demographics and the poverty would think it was time to recognize that it was much smarter to, to allow uh, birth control. And he kept making the point that, that he that the act of making love should be just that it should not be an act of lust it should be an act of conscious love and that, that there should be deliberation in 
uh, whether uh, and a consciousness about whether you wanted to create a child or you know a sensitivity. And so it was a way of you know it's kind of reflected the what was known as the rhythm technique um, within the church. But he was very candid about some of the trickiest issues. And remember, this is the early 80s. This is, you know, women's lib had only just taken off in the 70s and um, the pill in the 60s. And he was a he was a, a fairly candid guy. I, I loved having conversations with him. A, a good interview. A great interview. Uh, so you were, you were uh, in, the, in Rome for, for about a year, you said? About a year and a half, and um, then I had a case of sexual harassment by my bureau chief. Uh, uh, it's a long story. I didn't like it, but um, I decided it was time to go back to print. And what I really love, the problem with television is that if you don't have pictures, then you don't have a story. And they, you know, people just don't take words. And that, you know, it's one thing to cover a coup d'etat or a war, but to have to cover, you know, uh, earthquakes and uh, the eruption of a Mount Etna, you know, was not my thing. So uh, I decided that I'd been going in and out of the Middle East for quite a while, and that it was time to go back. And so I joined the Sunday Times of London and based myself in Beirut in the 1980s, early 1980s, and was there for five years. And this was during the Civil War, um, the Israeli invasion, the rise of Hezbollah, several of my friends were taken hostage um, by Hezbollah during that period. So we you, I mean, this was, I mean, this was, this was pretty much right when, um, you know, the, 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 the height of the civil war in Lebanon, right? Yes. Uh, so and I covered, it, and I covered not just, the, not just Lebanon, but I did the whole region. I, you know, I, I actually had covered the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis. I was in Algiers, the moment the hostages were released and was standing at the foot of the steps of the plane covering their arrival to freedom uh, in 1980. So, like, how um, – I, I spoke to Octavia Nasser for, for one of these interviews, and, and she was covering the um, Lebanese Civil War at the time, the, the former CNN reporter. Um, I guess, like, how – I mean – in in such like a fractious uh, environment, I mean, in in divided Beirut, how do you actually go about doing your job? I mean, it seems like so incredibly difficult. I mean, it's difficult to be a war reporter at any time, but in such like a a city that's divided like neighborhood by neighborhood between armed groups, where you know reporters are sometimes victims and and getting you know kidnapped and killed. Like, how do you how do you do what you're sent there to do? Oh, I don't know. I think at some point you begin to develop instincts about where to go, how to do things, what's dangerous, how far are you willing to go. I mean, I have been incredibly fortunate because I've had some very, very close calls, incredibly close calls, and a lot of my colleagues haven't made it. I've lost friends in the Syrian war, um, too many, and in Lebanon. Um, but when I covered the war in Angola, I went in with, uh, I, co- I believe in covering all sides of a war. I don't do just, you know, our side. In fact, I make a point of trying to go to the other side so that um, that I understand a conflict, you know, uh, that I know both sides and I'm, I'm not, you know, um, shaped my or my reporting just because one side is allied with the United States or the United States is involved. And so I covered... Um, all three sides of the Angolan Civil War, but 
in the north, I went in with one pro-Western faction that had, that had hired British mercenaries. And I was in the town uh, with the British mercenaries, last town held by this group. And the Cuban-backed Angolan forces moved in to a, this town, which is on the mouth of the Congo River where it meets the Atlantic. And there was no, no, no way out. So everyone raced down to the river. And I mean, this is, a, you know, flows right into the ocean. So it was not like little stream of river. This is mighty, mighty Congo River. And there was a terrible storm and there was only a little tugboat by the dock. And so it's a town of 350 people and everybody was trying to get, you know, hang on to this little tugboat that was so small it made the African queen if you've ever seen the Humphrey Bogart movie, looked like a, a riverboat cruiser. I mean, this little tugboat was tiny. And from the weight of the humans trying to grab onto it, it capsized. I was in the tiny little cabin, and we all went into the drink. And by that point, the forces were on the beachfront, on the shore, firing at us in the middle of the storm. So people on both sides of me got hit, went down, you know, pools of blood were everywhere. It was awful. And the mercenaries eventually got the tugboat uprighted and um, and it set off under fire across the mouth of the river to um, the Congo. And out of 350 people, only 22 of us made it out alive. So there are a lot of close calls. Yikes. Wow. Um, so uh, I guess, like, how do you process something like that? I mean, how how do you like reflect on that and, and sort of understand what, what just happened. Well, some of them are like out of body experiences, to be honest with you. Um, when you look back on them, I, you know, I did a prison stint in Angola because I went back to the capital to cover the trial of the mercenaries who were captured at that town and ended up one. They won. The government wanted me to be a, a witness against them. And I said, I'm an observer, not a participant. I have a visa as a journalist. You can introduce my articles, but I don't, I'm not part of this process. And because I refused to testify, um, they put me in jail, interrogated me and so forth. Um, that's another long story, but how, how long were you in an Angola jail for long, long enough? Um, and, and anyway, so, um, you know, every trip, Every time this happens to me, I say, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, <laughs> I should learn my lesson. <laughs> I've had enough. My body's been battered and bruised and, and um, I've been scared out of my mind. And I always think this is the last time. And I keep doing it. And I think it goes back to the fact that I love history. I'm, I'm witnessing history as it happens. It's such a privilege. I'm a little girl, an absolute nobody from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I've had access to some of the most notorious and famous people in the world. I've traveled with almost every president since Jimmy Carter and every secretary of state since Henry Kissinger. You know, I, I've interviewed Idi Amin and Muammar Gaddafi. And I've also traveled with the Pope and interviewed Nelson Mandela. So I've seen, you know, it's, it's been a great adventure of my life. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about this, but I, I won't keep you for hours. Can I ask, like, what uh, what are your current uh, research focus? What what are your current reporting projects? Uh, anything you want to tease out or uh, just kind of like plug? Oh, you never know with my life. Um, you know, kind of 
depends on what happens. I'm going next week to be an international observer in the Tunisian presidential election. Um, Excellent. So, I mean, one of the one success story so far of the uh, Arab Spring. We'll see. The two final candidates for president, one is an 87-year-old former foreign minister for the Ancien Regime, the autocrats, and the other is the president who emerged after the uprising. And so we see a contest here between the old, the old ways and the new, and we'll see if the kind of Egypt syndrome plays out in Tunisia now, too. Uh, and are you uh, like an election observer or are you uh, yes. to observe? Oh, well, so not like you're not going to be reporting. You're going to be. Um... Well, who knows? I may write something out of it. As I say, okay. you never know with me. All right. Thanks all. We will be back next week with some more uh, original content. Bye.